Hello, and welcome to the Poetic Devices Podcast. I am your host, Kay Crow, the bird bard and the traveling typist. Each episode, we'll discuss the stories, philosophies, and realities of my life as an on-demand typewriter poet. Whether I'm in a five-star hotel or hitting the streets, my typewriters and I travel to bring poetry to the people. So, tune in for Poetry in Motion. Today's episode, we will be covering the topic of typewriter poetry as street performance and my experiences and musings thereof. Today's episode contains content warnings for street harassment, assault, catcalling, and generalized sexism. And everything I am going to say after this point comes with this caveat. My street performing stories and advice are derived from performing while white. BIPOC poets. This advice may or may not apply to you. It is out of my lane to give you advice on how to do poetry in public. You know best how to keep yourselves safe. So defer to your own intuition and community knowledge. And here we are. Part one, we all start as the starving artist. I started off just like any other poor starving artist. I had this very understandable feeling and fear that, oh, uh, mm, I want my art to be worth money, but I feel shame assigning monetary value to my art. And uh, mm, you can pay this much for it, I guess. I just had this very unhealthy, almost performative uncertainty that most of us do. We feel so self-conscious assigning a monetary value to our art that we just don't want to. I didn't want to. And so I ran away from it. Or when people asked, I said, oh, uh, you can pay this much or you can give me less or you can run me over with your truck if that would make you happy, I'm sorry. It, it felt very, Sir, excuse me, you're the one with the money. Sir, could you please give the starving orphan poet just a few dollars? Just a few shillings so I could have some bread? Please, sir. And I felt like I was an urchin on the streets of jolly old England. And what really changed and what really revolutionized things for me was the poetry brothel. Again, the poetry brothel Chicago doesn't exist anymore. And I've never personally had any, any interactions with the head chapter in New York, so I can't speak to them from personal experience. But the whole concept of the poetry brothel was the gamification of my relationship with money. And that is probably the key turning point in my career as an artist. Let me explain. You see, prior to that, I had my poetry, but I was not sure of myself. Being in the brothel, it was part of the rules. It was baked into the script that I had to put on a character. First, I had to create a character, a poetic persona, and then enact that character. And then these Johns, quote unquote, these patrons, were entering the space into this immersive show. 
They were entering into a social contract that they consented to ahead of time when they bought their ticket and read the event description. They were consenting to enter this space wherein they were consenting to be approached by the poetry whores and who and to enjoy this immersive experience and be schmoozed by the poetry whores and engage in this energetic dance to see if we poetry whores could wheedle their money out of them and entice them upstairs for private readings and this dance of oh hey aren't you handsome don't you look good tonight you look like you could use some poetry would you like to hear a rhyming couplet, darling, would you? Hmm. And so it's this sultriness of it. It's the ability to play. Suddenly I step into this sort of sexy persona where it's like, hey, I have something you want. You want my poetry. You want me. You want this experience. And you can have it because you have something I want. I want your money. And money becomes this fun game piece in this energetic exchange where we are coming as equals. We, where we both recognize that we have something the other person would feel delighted to have access to. It's like, hey, this can be fun for both of us if you decide to play this game. If you decide to say yes to this offer, to my offer, then we can both have fun. And the gamification happened and my relationship with money changed. In that moment, as that poetry whore, Katarina Crow, all of the sudden I was thrust into this whole new world where I could ask for money for my art. And I could do it in a way that was fun and saucy and spicy because it wasn't just my art that people were paying for. And I wasn't just begging them for my rent money. I was approaching them as an experience, and their money was the token that let them ride the ride. The poetry ride, you dirty-minded folks out there, though, no shame to sex workers. Former poetry whores do not shame our hard-working counterparts. But when I got to play Katarina Crow, suddenly everything changed, and that carried forward into my career as an on-demand typewriter poet, because suddenly, I was putting myself out into the street. Part two, stepping into the persona. Yes, the gamification of my relationship with money was the career changing moment for my artistic trajectory. But the creation of my poetry brothel character, Katarina Crow, was what allowed me to have that breakthrough moment in the first place. I remember the cast of the poetry brothel being assigned to come up with our characters, backstories, mannerisms, biographies. Some of my fellow poetry whores were Prince Bacon, Tootsie Roulette, Buddy Chops, and Pearl Devour. They were outlandish. They were fun. I had, and still do have, self-esteem issues. I have a hard time stepping into a strong sense of self-worth sometimes. This is what made asking for money for my art so hard, because I personally didn't feel I had worth. So how could I believe my art had worth? And how could I ask to be financially compensated for a worth that I didn't believe I, and by extension my art, had? That Katarina Crow, I dreamed her up. 
She was abducted by the Fae from the southeast 200 years ago. She was sucked into the fairy realm and held hostage by the Goblin King for two years. Except when she broke out of the Goblin Kingdom and returned to her reality, 200 years had passed. She was found by a trucker on the side of the road in Appalachia, garbling, rhyming nonsense. And she slowly reacclimated to this world. Except upon fleeing, she had been cursed by the Goblin King to transform slowly into a bird, which is why she had feathers sticking out of her every which way. And so, in a desperate rush for time, she is attempting to write all of her stories and also find a way to break her curse before it is too late. I, Kay Crow, may not feel like my art is worth anything. But Katarina Crow? She was held hostage in a mythical kingdom, told a goblin king to suck it, and escaped. She adjusted to a whole new century and became a famous poetry whore. Even though she was cursed, I, Kay Crow, may not have the grit it takes to stand up for my art. But, but Katarina Crow sure as shit does. I can step into her character and suddenly I am so much more powerful. The ability to step into a character, to become someone else, is incredibly important for a sense of artistic safety. For me, at least. If a patron rejected me, they weren't rejecting me. They were rejecting my character. And this is why I bring this sense of character acting with me to the street. I don't go by Katarina Crow anymore. I go by the traveling typist. Though hints of Katarina Crow still linger. When I'm at home and in my life, I use they, them pronouns. But when I'm street performing, I put on a wig and a dress and I use she, her pronouns. I joke that my pronouns are they, them, or she, her, if you pay me. Credit to Colty for coming up with that joke. The ability to put on this character is a form of armor, a form of self-protection, but also a license to invite people to play. By inhabiting this persona, I invite people to play a game. And it also helps to create a strong divide between my work life and my personal life. Because when I go home, the wig comes off and I hang the traveling typist up in the closet until it's time for her to come out again. There's a reason plays are called plays and not works. Because when we play a character, we invite other people to play with us. And it is that invitation that is at the core of this episode. So, part three, translating from the brothel to the street. Now, it is one thing to have a very specific container, an event where people buy their ticket beforehand, they read the rules, they come in, and they know what to expect. It is a completely other thing to be the weird thing people encounter on the sidewalk. In the brothel, the patrons had context. Out in the street, there is no context. We have to make up our own context as we go. A costumed weirdo with a typewriter and a big sign that says, come get a poem. What the heck is that? Pa these people have no idea what they've encountered. They have no idea what the rules are, unlike the brothel. So suddenly they are approaching me in public and they know that this is something odd. <laughs> this is big side quest energy. 
That's the thing I love about street poetry, big side quest energy. And in the big side quest energy, you have the people who self-select. And by people self-selecting, they are automatically, at least, at least, consenting to have a surface level interaction with you. Because if I'm an NPC or non-player character, to use a video game metaphor, the player aka the curious person in this metaphor, has to come up and activate my dialogue. So they are choosing to come up to me to, at the very least, hear what the quest I have to offer is. And it's on-demand poetry, baby. And then I give them the rules. And I have a very articulate spiel that I give them, that I have refined over the last few years. Hello, are you curious about what happens here? And they usually reply, yes. And I respond, well, give me a topic, give me your money, and I'll write you a poem. And I'll even read it to you to sweeten the deal. How's that sound? And if they lean into the interaction, I tell them how much it costs, and that I take cash, Venmo, Zelle, and diamond-encrusted tiaras. And I include that for a very specific reason. I will get into the diamond-encrusted tiaras bit later in this episode. And... After they've activated this line of dialogue, they have a few options. They can either say, I'm sorry, I can't today, and move along. Or they can say enthusiastically, yes, or they can't afford it. And if they can't afford it, I'll throw them a curveball and say that I can write them a haiku for whatever they can afford. Because I am out here to democratize art and bring poetry to the people. And to do that, art has to be accessible. But to hear more about that, you should listen to the second episode of this podcast. If I see they are enthusiastic, but they cannot afford it, I offer them another way to continue on the ride. I do a lot of things to set them up with the context they need to give informed consent. I have a big sign that says, come get a poem. I have a typewriter. I'm sitting out in the middle of the road. Well, the side of the road. All of these things are signposts and symbols that attempt to give them context so they can give informed consent. Between the signage and the typewriters, they usually go, oh, and they've gotten enough hints to piece together what's going on here. It's not only informed consent, but enthusiastic consent. Because if they're not a fuck yes, they're a fuck no. And once I give them the information, we enter the phase of negotiation. Part four, different terms of negotiation and the kinds of negotiation for different kinds of street performance. Now, negotiation as a street performer is very different depending on what kind of street performer you are. Musicians are far and away the most common kind of street performers. We've all seen the guitar player or the saxophone player or the accordionist on the side of the road. We know the social contract of how it works. They play their instrument, we listen, we put money in their case. There isn't a lot of talking that happens unless it's in the brief moments between songs when they're grabbing a drink of water or catching their breath. For the last 10 years, my partner has been a living statue at real live statue outside the Art Institute. They paint themselves silver, they stand up on a platform and they have a bucket where people can put their tips. They dance like a robot and clown around with passers-by. They are a professionally trained clown, but they are silent. 
because statues don't talk. They have a sign with their Venmo on it and they complete nearly 100% of their interactions through mime. That is, unless someone egregiously oversteps the boundaries of the social contract and violates consent. But I'll get to that in the end. In those cases, hell yeah, even I break character and shout at people who are being complete jerks in public. Now, my kind of street performance is radically different from most other kinds of street performance. That said, both I and the kinds I have listed before lean heavily on the use of props to provide context for patrons, aka giving them nonverbal cues on how to ride the ride. I'm talking about my partner's sign. I'm talking about the musician's case being open. But the thing that makes my kind of street performance different is precisely because it is so verbal. It is interactive. It is by its very nature conversational. And in that conversation, comes the negotiation. So, part five, clarity in the terms of negotiation. It's a dance of energy between two people. This dance, this negotiation thing is, you have to be rock solid and crystal clear on the terms of those negotiations. Case in point, we come back to the diamond encrusted tiaras. My spiel used to say, I take cash, Venmo, Zelle, magical amulets, and interpretive dance. And one day that came back to haunt me in a very, very odd way. I was busking outside of Necessary Insufficient Coffee kiosk on Wrightwood Avenue in Logan Square. They are great, by the way. You should go. They have a beetroot latte on the menu that is to die for. There is a mailbox there on the corner. I am sitting outside with my typewriter set up under a tree with my little tray table. And these two women come up and I said interpretive dance in my little spiel and they lit up. They say, we are professional interpretive dancers. What if we gave you a prompt and you gave us a prompt and while you type out our poem, we interpretive dance to your prompt as payment. So because of the ridiculousness and the novelty of the situation, we said, why not? And they gave us the phrase, bread emergency. And we gave them the prompt, Segway, as in the super lame scooter thing from Paul Blart, Mall Cop. I wrote a terrible poem about bread emergency, as in, this is the yeast of your problems. Don't you worry about it. And he showed up half-baked. It was awful. It was awful. And while I was typing, they got on their imaginary segways and rode around pantomiming. And then they proceeded to mime a slow motion dramatic segway crash. One woman mimed her segway careening into the mailbox. She then rolled onto the ground and wedged herself underneath the mailbox. She was wearing her nice Sunday clothes. And she got down on the ground and splayed herself dramatically under the mailbox. And yes, they did like their poems. Another time, I was doing a Christmas market in December of 2021. A woman came up to me and she was selling new age crafts and offering Reiki at one of the other booths. And she heard me say cash, Venmo, Zelle, magical amulets and interpretive dance. And she said, wait. And she went back to her booth and came back with some magical herbs woven around a hagstone. For those of you who don't know, a hagstone is a stone 
that has a naturally occurring hole in it, usually bored by water or erosion. Folklore in Europe says that if you look through the hole, you can see into the fairy realm. She says, will you accept this magical amulet? And I said, oh, why the hell not? But I have learned that when I am negotiating the social contract and displaying the terms to people, I have to be very careful with what I offer to them because they may consent in a way I don't expect. And they may get very enthusiastic about things that I threw in as a joke, which is why I changed the spiel to cash, Venmo, Zell, and diamond-encrusted tiaras. Because if someone gives me a diamond-encrusted tiara, I am saying hell yes. Even if it's cubic zirconium, I'll take it. I would love a tiara. I actually had a woman in Fulton Market joke like she was going to take off her diamond earrings once and give them to me. So I have gotten close. And you know what? Stranger things have happened. But if you say it in the terms, someone will take you up on it at some point. So you better be damn well sure that when you are negotiating the terms of the interaction you are about to have with this stranger, that you are very precise with what those terms are, what you will accept, and what you will not accept. Part 6. Money marking the moment of consent. The basic flow is always this. They give you their topic, they give you their money, and you give them a poem. They may need a minute to think about their topic. They may walk away for a minute and then come back. That's fine, let them. But then they'll give you their topic and their money. Fellow typewriter poets always get their money before they leave because you will spend that energy writing that poem. But if they don't pay for it, they will likely as not never come back for it. But once they pay you, they will come back for their poem because it's the buy-in for the experience. It's like, dang, I paid for that piece of art and I am going to come back for it. I invested in this experience and I am going to see it through to the end. I consented to have this interaction and I'm gonna make sure I get the full experience. So once I have their money in my hand and they give me their topic, then the contract becomes that I will write them a poem. And then I do. And then they come back. They either hang around or wander away and return. And then I read it to them. And in the reading is usually where things get a little unexpected because they know they are consenting to a poem. What they don't know they are consenting to is the emotional depth that these things can get to, unless they do, because sometimes people say, my mom just died or I'm trying to get out of a four month depressive episode. Can you help me? And so they are consenting to let you write about their vulnerability. They are placing themselves in your hands. And this goes back to last month's episode on deep listening, radical vulnerability and poetic witnessing. So go back and listen to that if you want more nitty gritty on holding this space. But they are consenting to bear their belly to you and to let you create a piece of art for them. And in that act of consent, they are engaging in a power dynamic. In that power dynamic, they may not realize just how much power they are giving you, or they might, but just as in any power dynamic, whether it is sexual or kink related or otherwise, once a person consents to a power exchange where they give you permission to have power over them, 
That is a sacred responsibility and it should not be handled lightly. It needs to be handled with care and attention. But I'll get to that in a minute. Part seven, the terms of negotiation people bring to you. Your yes and your no. People bring different energies to the table and by accepting those energies, you are consenting to write them a poem appropriate to their energy and their situation. If a little kid comes up and says, I want a poem about a giraffe, you are consenting to write a poem that is appropriate for a child about a giraffe. This is not the place to get all broody, and it's not the place to get all what is the metaphor of life and death as represented by Werner Herzog's giraffe? No. You are consenting to write a poem that a child can understand. And I usually go full-on rhyming for the kids. Or someone asks you to write a silly poem about possums, or a deep poem about death, or when you are agreeing to the premise at least. Sometimes I give them a poem with a twist, but I never deliver a total violation of their expectations. One of my favorite interplays between consent and poetry is when people allow me to roast them. When they say, roast me, and they are giving explicit consent for me to be mean to them with my typewriter. Once, a man came up to me at the Chris Kindle market and he said, hey, I'm a terrible boyfriend. This is my on-again, off-again girlfriend of 10 years. Can you write me a poem of roasting me about letting shitty men back into your life? And it's another very fun, very rare occurrence. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it is great. And they consent to it enthusiastically. They want it. They paid me for it. This is what they asked for. And when I read it, they love it. They laugh, they cry, they tip me extra. All that said, consent is a tricky subject, especially when it comes to the dynamic of power that comes between a typewriter poet and their patrons. When people want simple poems about sunshine or flowers or hope, the dynamic remains pretty equal. Patron, poet. But sometimes things get a little more vulnerable and the power dynamic becomes a power exchange. It becomes deeper and much more necessitating of trust. They are letting me get behind the wheel of their emotional car and drive. And in that, money becomes a tool marking the flow of energy from one person to another. The way these exchanges work is not transactional. It's relational. And that underpins my whole business philosophy. I am not trying to extract people's money out of them, and I am not a vending machine people put money into and get a poem out of. We relate to each other for a few beautiful minutes and make a work of art together through this dynamic we both have stepped into. There is a great model called The Wheel of Consent by Betty Martin and Robin Dalson. In it, there are four quadrants, take, allow, and serve, accept. You are either the doer or the person being done to. You are either doing something for yourself or for the other person. And from these dynamics, the four quadrants emerge. And in these quadrants, you get very clear on when something you are doing is for yourself and when something you are doing is for the other person. You get very clear on what is being done to you is for yourself or if it's for the other person. 
I highly recommend you read the book and I won't belabor the point. Suffice to say that using this method has taught me invaluable lessons about locating, tracing, and articulating the flow of energy between myself and others. And part of articulating that flow of energy is recognizing when it's going places you don't like. And that brings us to part eight, your right to say no. In your time on the street, you will encounter people who violate consent, people who try to spontaneously renegotiate the terms of engagement, and people who are just plain awful in public. And remember, you always have the right to say no, with the caveat that if you are a female presenting, you may have to dance around it in certain ways to avoid danger. I say this from first-hand experience. There will be people who flout the terms of consent in small, annoying ways. Sometimes people will pay and never come back for their poems. Well, their loss. But it is disappointing when you wrote something you were proud of and were excited to share with them, and then they throw the terms out the window by leaving their piece of art behind. This is why we get their money up front. There will be people who agree to the contract, but with a twist. In ways you don't expect. See the, my previous examples on interpretive dance and magical amulets. Often folks will message me after the fact, asking me to send them their poem. The thing is, I have written over 2,000 poems at this point, and I have not taken pictures of them all. And even if I did, that is a lot of legwork to go hunting through. They violated the terms of the negotiation by walking off without their poems. And that's on them, not you. And then there will be people who try and come up to you and dictate what the terms of the contract will be instead of waiting to hear the terms you offer. Case in point, one day, in the middle of a very busy Sunday afternoon, a compatriot and I were typewriting poems. There was a line. We had our sign-up sheet. This old white man in a fedora comes up to us, sees the poem sign and the typewriters, and clearly gets what's going on. He comes up, doesn't even introduce himself, or listen to see what we have to say. He points at the two of us and says, I want you two to battle it out and write me competing poems. At which point my colleague and I just looked at him and said, no and told him he could either get in line or have a nice day. At which point he chose to have a nice day and wandered off. One time, a guy walked past me and my colleague, took a look at me and shouted, nice tits, to which I missed a beat and then responded, nice shitty personality. And then he wandered away. Or the sweaty shirtless guy on the much too small bicycle in Logan Square who wouldn't leave me alone, who bragged about not having slept for 36 hours and coming from the Motley Crue concert. He left four stacks of quarters on my table, threw a handful of change into my jar, and then wheeled off to Taco Bell. After coming back from Taco Bell, he asked me where, my, where his poem was and then accused me of stealing his bus fare. He only left after I lied and said I had a husband. The vast majority of people will play nicely within the terms that you set and gladly consent to them. And then there are people who may push the boundaries a little. And then there are people who push the boundaries a lot. And then there are people who say boundaries. Who's she? Does she even go here? 
hold your ground, and prioritize your safety above all other things. Part nine, final notes on different performance contexts and performing while feminine in public. When I do poetry on the street, it is very different from other contexts where I do poetry in the world. When I do poetry at the Wonder Museum, they pay me a base wage and I work for tips. I will write you a poem whether you tip me or not. But when they give you their money, they aren't just helping you pay rent. Side note, one of the funny things I like to say when people tip me at the Wonder Museum is, thanks for the tip, both I and my landlord appreciate it. Wink. It's this tacit acknowledgement that yes, your money is helping me survive capitalism, but also we're still having fun with it. We're still playing a game. You don't need to feel guilty that you're not giving me enough, and I don't need to feel like a pathetic starving artist because I know my worth. When I get hired to do poetry at people's events, I charge an hourly rate. Attendees of the event can come up and get poems, and the event producer is footing the bill. In that case, the energetic exchange becomes much more based around the muse-artist dynamic. Provide inspiration, receive art. Both the above contexts are a walk in the park compared to street poetry. Street poetry is where you learn the grit and get dirty. Managing crowds of drunk people, making sure you find a spot in the shade, and always remembering to bring a water bottle, that's just the tip of the iceberg. A final note on doing street performance while feminine in public. I said earlier that my pronouns are they, them, or she, her, if you pay me. Doing street poetry in public can be dangerous when you look like anything other than a man. Go out during daylight, and once it gets dark, pack it up and pack it out. If you are busking the nightlife scene, do it as a duo or with a buddy. Or at the very least, try and have someone walk with you back to your car. If you are absolutely hell-bent on doing it alone, park your car somewhere nearby, brightly lit, and without any hiding places where someone can jump out at you. Because you're going to be hauling your equipment back to your car, you are going to be vulnerable to people mugging you or attacking you. Be careful. Lots of my male presenting typewriter poets can just jet across the country, live in a van, and go full vagabond. I was told to go down to buy new I was told to go down to New Orleans, which is the typewriter poetry mecca, by the way, by one such poet. The thing is, I don't travel by myself because I have almost wound up dead in a creek a couple times in my life, and I don't care to repeat the experience. I don't care to tempt fate. It's a dangerous world out there, and as much as I wish I could freewheel the way some of my male counterparts do, I have been harassed, assaulted, and nearly robbed a few too many times. First and foremost, stay safe out there. But the thing is, as you spend more time doing street poetry, you will get the street smarts. You will learn, you will adapt, and you will understand what it takes to take this to the streets. And that's my episode for the day. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.
Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you would like to stay abreast of my poetic developments, you can sign up for my email newsletter at thetravelingtypist.com, or you can follow me on social media at Croetry, K-R-O-E-T-R-Y. K-R-O-E-T-R-Y. My name is Crow. I write poetry. It's Croetry. You can find me on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and also with your mother. I'm everywhere. Stay poetic out there.